Coming up on episode 64 of the Up Full Life Podcast. Rolling in my sixth I'm I'm just so grateful that she exists and I don't care if she doesn't give us another album. She completely doesn't owe us anything uh, because of what she's already given us. But if a thing tests me, run to What I think happened when you put that much pressure and you put that much adoration and you put that much responsibility on someone who was only 23 years old, you know, she was 23 when Miss Education came out and you put all of that onto someone who was at that point had a child and was pregnant with her second child. So she's got like two children and she's going through heartache again, you know, reliving it with this album after having had this monumental success at the age of 21, it takes its toll on the spirit. Hot damn hole, here we go again. You know, I've been a Kim fan forever. You know, um, Lil' Kim is the reason why I became a hip hop journalist. I <laughs> approached her at a TGI Fridays um, right after Biggie died to offer my condolences. And she invited me to sit down and have dinner with her. It's you with chicken head. <laughs> but I did want to talk about how what she endured and then also how the music industry was so ruthless and practically blackballing her for leaving artists and producers reluctant to work with her, her being booed at shows and award show ceremonies for leaving. I mean, the things that we forget or, you know, choose to never even think about that, that she endured and then becoming this icon after the fact, in spite of all that stuff. Welcome to the Up Full Life Podcast. I'm your host, B. Getz, and this is episode number 64, coming at you live and direct from the Vibe Junkie Studios in Oakland, California. And we're taking it back to Jersey, New York City, Philadelphia, hip hop, the ladies, the ladies. So grateful you are tuning in. Greetings, dearly beloveds. If you enjoy the Up for Life podcast, you have the time and are so inclined, please consider 
leaving a rating and or a review. Preferably on Apple Podcasts, but really on your podcast platform of choice. Rating and reviewing goes a long way to steering those algorithms in this direction, bringing us new listeners, new ears, new souls, spreading the Upful Life vibration. And that's a good thing, fam. And now if you'd like to hit me up directly, feel free to send me an email, b.getz at upfullife.com. That's b.getz at upfullife.com. I love to hear from the people. So if you have suggestions or reflections or constructive criticisms, send them my way, b.getz at upfullife.com. And if, you know, you'd like to support what I do on the pod or in the written music media thing or just kick me down a few dollars for making you holla, uh, you can do so by going to upfullife.com. Just click on that support button at the top of the website and send a Venmo. We appreciate you. Give thanks. Upfullife.com. Yes, indeedy. episode 64 the upful life podcast and i know i'm coming in a couple of weeks late i do apologize i'm not going to make any excuses other than to say i'm going to be better about nailing it on a monthly basis i am going to turn around and put out 65 in swift succession in just a couple of two three weeks but moving forward i gotta dial in the month and speaking of the last episode 63 with my man david manheim from dopey podcast huge success amazing response did bananas numbers off rip and also made the og pod with dave uh just hit uh record numbers so i want to give thanks and a deep bow to the dopey nation for showing out showing love to dave of course for sliding through and blessing up the up for life podcast it goes a long way and we give thanks now the upful update's going to be a little bit short this ep because it's a bit of a lengthy conversation but i do want to run through 
a few things I put out onto the interwebs uh, since we last spoke. You can head on over anytime to upfullife.com and check out any of my print media endeavors and of course pick up the podcast there so forth but since we last spoke international base wizards Ott and Goopsteppa made their long-awaited return to the Bay Area and it was at Public Works on the penultimate night of 2022 uh, you can check out my work on live for live music or upfullife.com followed that one up with Lanyap Love New Orleans own the Iceman special makes a spectacular San Francisco debut, which I put out on Live for Live Music uh, towards the end of January. Uh, And that was from the Boom Boom Room uh, in the Fillmore District uh, with TV Broken Third Eye Open. It was a great show, some underground cats I highly recommend. And then later that weekend, but the Shogun was scared of him. The Jizza, the genius, Wu-Tang, Brings the Shaolin styles to Yoshi's, Oakland. A a legendary jazz haunt. uh, An iconic venue here in the East Bay. And the Jizza. It was a very intimate set. Setting. And uh, we sat in a booth that was reserved for the Rizza himself. It had the little tags on it. But uh, Bobby Digital obviously couldn't make the engagement. Therefore, we were blessed. And when I say we, I went to the show by myself. But these random cats I met, we got the Riz's booth, which was a excellent vantage point. And you can read my reflections on... Uh, he did all of Liquid Swords and then a smattering of other tracks from his illustrious career. That was a very special, special evening. And then, just the other day, Object Heavy, which is the best-kept secret in the NorCal funk R&B soul scene out of the Emerald Triangle Arcada. Shout out to my man B-Swizz. Walking Righteously, NorCal's Object Heavy drops Love and Gravity LP on Color Red Label. And again, on Live for Live Music or also UpFullLife.com. It's an album reflection, album review, if you will on the sophomore but kind of like a uh, rebirth of sorts no pun intended for object heavy and most recently i hopped on lettuce tour last week had the good fortune of getting four shows in two in tahoe and two in san francisco diary of a mad band lettuce completes west coast run in lake tahoe in San Francisco, that's me on Live for Live Music or UpfulLife.com. It's a deep dive into the machinations and performances of Lettuce across four shows, no repeats, buku debuts, bust outs. It was a fantastic uh, experience, and it kind of dulled the pain of not joining my uh, newlywed bride alicia on her virgin jam cruise maiden voyage which just set sail a couple hours ago and i've been preparing this pod as she was preparing to depart dropped her off at the airport yesterday so shout out to all my jam cruisers i kind of consider myself retired from the boat i almost came out of retirement to join alicia but uh, the music gods whispered me a different tune so tbd as the kids say um, 
But that kind of puts a bow on the past month or so of my uh, written music media endeavors. Again, I encourage you to slide through Live for Live Music. They're the ones who make it happen for the Cap'n. And I'm so grateful to Live for Live Music. And again, upfullife.com for all the things. Hello. Absolutely John Blaze shit right there. That remix. And it is my honor and privilege to welcome to episode 64 of the Up for Life podcast the great author, journalist, educator, Kathy Yondley. Now, I've been a fan of Kathy's for longer than I even realized because she's been writing about hip hop and music and culture for a couple decades. And she's an old-school, okay player, even deeper than myself. Uh, She goes way back, and and she'll get into all that. But as listeners know, I went to OK Player University. It's really where I got my thumb on the pulse of what's happening. So to know that Kathy was an integral part of that website, those message boards, that community, really just kind of affirmed that I was on the right path trying to connect with her and also in a lot of ways emulate her she's made a lot of moves and carved out a hell of a career for herself which we get deep into over the course of almost two hours um i'm going to read from kathy's bio real quick so you can get an idea of who we're going to be talking to here Kathy Yondley is a critically acclaimed journalist, author, podcaster, media coach, and documentarian. She has nearly 25 years experience working in the music industry, from media to publicity, radio, and artist management. Her first book, God Save the Queens, The Essential History of Women in Hip Hop, 2019, uh, Day Street Books, HarperCollins, was named an NPR Best Book of the Year. She is the author of the biography Baby Girl, better known as Aaliyah, 2021, Atria Books, Simon & Schuster, as well as the co-author of rapper Lil' Kim's upcoming memoir, The Queen Bee, which drops this year, Hatchet Books. Kathy has written about music and gender for two decades with bylines and vibe, The Source, XXL, Village Voice, Rolling Stone, Billboard, Pitchfork, Bus, Teen Vogue, Paper, Playboy, 
ID, Cosmopolitan, Maxim, The Guardian, Vice, and many others. Kathy was a professor in residence of music business at NYU for seven years, as well as an alum of Steinhardt's music business graduate program. She has served as a pundit on television, radio, and panels for discussions on hip-hop and gender. Woo! Hell of a bio, Kathy. Um, And you're going to hear a whole lot more about where she's from, how she got there, where she's headed, the work she's done. Goes without saying, we talk a lot about baby girl Aaliyah. Now, uh, that's actually how I first connected with Kathy was I read the book and then I heard her on uh, Breaking Adam's podcast and then I heard her on uh, an old Questlove Supreme and then I just kind of threw her into Google and read a bunch of her articles, got God Save the Queens, did that one on audiobook. Um, I reached out to her some time ago in the aftermath of Baby Girl, similar to Dan Charnas. There's some parallels here because uh, they teach at NYU and they write about hip-hop and uh, we're all Caucasians and, and just chronicling the culture in a respectful, responsible way. And they're both North Stars to me. So it was uh, really a thrill to chop it up with Kathy. And I tried to get with her right after the book came out, but it was a hectic time for her. And I kind of, she had one opportunity for me to talk to her. I was not available. And then it went away for like a year and a half. And again, like Charnas, uh, the, the time and space was beneficial to the nature and the, uh, the, the trajectory of our dialogue. And uh, with that, you know, we just dove in and we talk a lot about women in hip hop and the early days and her roots in Jersey. And of course, OK Player and the roots in the Black Lily scene and both at the Wetlands and in Philly. We get into beyond Aaliyah, which we do at the very end, but for a long time and quite in depth. We give almost the same amount of time and attention to Ms. Lauren Hill. Uh, it was very dear to me and even more dear to Kathy. And we talk in depth about Prodigy of Mob Deep, who Kathy has a book with him. It's not mentioned in that bio, but it's called Commissary Kitchen. And it's about uh, jail food and, and cooking in jail. And for better or for worse, I have a intimate understanding of that. So we get into that too. And we also talk about some less than comfortable stuff some of the undersides of both hip-hop industry hip-hop culture music media social media and you know this is a really long interview and uh i kind of normally might like trim out some of the asides or rabbit holes especially some of the personal ones where she talks about her experiences but i think it's important to leave that in because her life is really exciting and the relationships and projects and life experiences she has that she describes in detail and very and very candidly are awesome but it's important to understand that it comes at a cost and there is a dark side and mean people and cutthroat uh all kinds of stuff that pollutes the waters and makes makes things a little bit thankless, maybe makes things uncomfortable. Um, and Kathy's been through a lot, lived through a lot, not just with the, the deaths of Prodigy or 
writing about Aaliyah being gone, but a lot in her personal life too, some of which she references. Uh, so therefore, I let it run. I trimmed very little uh, because I think that the full arc, the good, the bad, and the ugly, which we both say a couple of times in the pod, it's important. So I left that in, and uh, I hope that y'all are as uh, entertained and enlightened and informed by Kathy's uh, career arc and, and life experiences as I am. Again, I see her as, as, a, as an icon and when it comes to writing about music and hip-hop and gender and culture. And if you go to her website, kathyondalee.com, it'll be in the show notes, you can just see oh, it's like a upforlife.com on steroids. It's a way better website, but it's all, the depth and breadth of her stories and the outlets is remarkable and and something that you, I could only aspire and strive for. So uh, salute Kathy Yondely for coming on my podcast. You're esteemed uh, journalist and educator and media coach and a lot of the things that, you know, I, I'd love to be and hope to be and <clears throat> work towards becoming. And now we're going to hear how you got there and ha- what the soundtrack was and some of your thoughts and reflections on the path taken before the destination. This is your boy B. Getz, Up For Life Podcast, episode 64, coming at you live and direct, Oakland, California. Kathy Yondely, OG OK player, author of Baby Girl, better known as Aaliyah, God Save the Queens, Commissary Kitchen, and the forthcoming Lil' Kim memoir on episode 64. Yes, indeedy. All right, all right. Well, this is a long time in the making. Been a fan of this journalist and chronicle of hip hop culture, Miss Kathy Yondely. It's an honor and a privilege to welcome you to the Upful Life podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, really. Uh, you know, I've been been following along with your projects uh, for several years, but I didn't really realize how long I'd really been interested in in your work and your bylines until I started listening to some podcasts over the past couple of years centered around your recent books. And uh, I really want to dig into that stuff, but like Questlove does and many other folks, I really like to start at the embryo because I'm from Jersey. I know you're from Jersey. I'm from Jerseydelphia, so like Cherry Hill area. Oh, I know yeah. you're from up, up North Jersey or the, the New York side. Yes. But, uh, yeah, just take me back to your roots, like, you know, where you're from, maybe like your first, like, really powerful connection to music. And then, you know, uh, where that led you as as young Kathy. Well, uh, like you had mentioned, I'm born and raised in New Jersey. Uh, my my family um when they came from Italy went to Patterson uh New Jersey and then later uh, moved uh, moved over to Hawthorne my in my childhood I you know went to school in Patterson and, and um spent quite a bit of time with my great grandma out there uh well my mom who was a teacher she taught in Patterson so for most of my growing up was was spent kind of like in Patterson and, and divided but between there and my house in Hawthorne. Um, musically, you know, my mother uh, played the piano. My father plays the guitar. 
Um, I have an uncle who was in a rock band. My my papa played the mandolin. I came from a very musical family. Uh, I wish I had like an eighth of that musical talent, but I think the love for the music is there. I can play the piano by ear and I play the guitar a little bit, but not enough to say that I'm a guitar player, I guess you could say. But music was always a part of my life, you know, um, just something that was always playing in my house. And hip hop more specifically happened around, hmm, I was maybe about 10 years old. It was 1989. And I remember there used to be, for us, it was channel 12. And um, after 4 p.m., it would become video music box. And, you know, with Uncle Ralph and uh, Crazy Sam, and we would just, you know, they would have like a bunch of videos just for like a couple hours. And I remember the the first video that I ever saw, hip hop video, was Ladies First. And I just remember being like, whoa. Some think that we can't flow. flow. Stereotypes, they got to go. go. I'ma mess around and flip the scene into revert. With what? With a little touch of Ladies First. Because you're, you know, I'm coming from the new kids on the block, Belle Biv DeVoe, like new edition uh, era. And then I see this video and I'm like, wait. And I think from that point on, I really became more just like taken by hip hop. I mean, especially two years later, you know, uh, TLC came out. Like that was like game over for me. <laughs> when when uh when TLC arrived and from there it just kept going and it was around well in 96 I got my first job at a record store and I was working my the first the week I started I think it was I forget which release had happened I think it might have been Lil Kim's album release but you know it was like in, in the uh, Il Nana and Hardcore uh, were released in tandem. So I was kind of in the heart of that. That was right when I, I got my job at the record store. So I got to watch like in real time, just kind of like this mass hysteria that was happening. And a couple of years later, I started working with The Roots and started writing and it just kept going from there. Uh, it's, it's like music has just always been a part of my life. And I think I'm like really lucky when I can say that it's most of my career. The other part is just really writing if I'm not writing about music or teaching about writing. So I'm just, you know, really fortunate that I was able to watch my mom play the piano or my dad play the guitar. And now I'm here. Long-winded answer. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, that's what I, my pod is a long winded pod and, and we're here for the stories and and as much the the path taken as the destination. So I appreciate it. And I see a lot of parallels, not just geographical, but, you know, just things that happen in our lives. I, I worked at a record store when I was a little older, but like in the summers in between college. And uh, I'm curious, was it like a, a box store or was it like a, like a towny record shop independent? It was uh, it was Sam Goody in high school, and then when I went to grad school at NYU, I worked at Fat Beats. Yeah, I've got the Fat Beats on my list here. Yeah, that yeah. had to be that had to be awesome and be in the 
belly of the backpack beast at that time. But oh before gosh. we get to that, I, I, I think it's really cool. And you, and you obviously dig deep into this in your book, God Save the Queens. But uh, when you talk about ladies first and you talk about like that window from, mm-hmm. you know, Latifah to, to Foxy and Kim, and then like so much in hip hop that had happened in that time period and like what is being presented artistically in ladies first, the message, the look is a far cry from what we're getting seven years later. And in that time is like your coming of age as a human being, as a hip hop fan. Um, and obviously the a nascent writer, I'm just curious, like what did young Kathy like, were, was there a continuity or were those two separate like worlds or events? Cause they just seem really disconnected from one another. But then when you told the story, it was, it was sort of like a natural lineage. I think it's um, there's a lot of continuity because we're talking about just the journey of self-expression for women in hip hop and what was happening in the world that, kind of brought us to that place you know um with latifa and moni and even uh light and yo-yo you're talking about the heart of i got and even tlc if we're we're, we're being honest and salt and pepper um but you're talking about um if, if we compare it to like punk let's say all of this was timed with riot girl she came down the staircase into a dumpster she grabbed an index card and she taped it to her forehead it read poor white trash she grabbed a gun put it to her heart and pulled the trigger now she's dead it's just a thought don't you look at me So there was like rebelling against something bigger that was happening. I mean, you know, 19, um, 1992 was marked the year of the woman because of the number of women who are on the Supreme court in the country. And it was also the year um, with the highest percentage of sexual assaults happening against women. So you're talking about this, like kind of like crazy imbalance that was happening in the country at the time. So all of these artists were kind of raging against this machine that was was being built where it's like it's like this you know in one minute you're bringing women into the supreme court and another women are fearing for their safety in a society that is completely unkind so the music was time to the era and by the time you got to little kim and foxy brown and and um lauren hill and Rod Digger, all of the artists that came out um, during that um, that era, like uh, several years later, they're a direct response to where hip hop was at the time. You know, because you're you're the glow up of the notorious B.I.G. and Jay Z, and even Nas, even though he had come out um, a few years earlier. Uh, but you're talking about like that '96, right? Was kind of like this moment where hip hop was um, on the verge of going massively mainstream. And then when, um, 
when Tupac Shakur was murdered in September of 96 and then Biggie in March of 97, the music industry started to become like super fearful about hip hop and Puffy had to kind of like usher in the shiny suit era to be like, no, 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 we're safe. We can still make our money. Like it, it was like a very, it was a very strange time, but the, the lanes were wide open for women, you know? Um, and what Kim was doing more specifically on a grander scale was taking that self-expression that was happening in years prior and adapting it to what was going on in hip hop at the time as the tax bracket was growing. And then you have other artists who kind of, um, you know, kept the ball rolling in terms of innovation, like Missy Elliott, who released her album in 97. So this whole thing is like happening. So for someone like myself and like, let's not even get into Lauren Hill yet, because you know how I feel about her. But when you have someone like myself, an impressionable Kathy, who is um, at that point, 18 years old, it was kind of like time to where I was going as, you know, becoming a woman. Right. Um, so for me, I kind of like, I, I grew up with these women, you know, that like every, every milestone from my 10 year old self until even now has been celebrated with where these women were in their own careers and the music that they were making because I'm a woman. So what was happening in the world was also affecting me on some level. The music that they were making spoke to me as well, because I was, it's like they were taking me along with them on their journey. Hold up, let's take it from the top. I fox, get to my swerve bone, floor's pure rocks. In the six drop, bull, and it don't stop. See money looking all right, yeah. What up, Bob? Cross the room, throwing signals, I'm throwing them back. Floor in, cause I dig you like that. Pete, baby boy style, hoping we match. You sent me crown royale with a note attached. You said you look like the type that know what you like. That's that's dope. And honestly, like to hear you put it with like signposts of your own coming of age, matching it to record specifically women, uh, groundbreaking artists of that nature is, uh, it's clearly why you are called for these projects because you have a personal connection and sort of a lived experience that is connected to the work yet objectively, uh, you can sort of assess where hip hop was, where women were, where politics were, Supreme Court, all these factors that the average person wouldn't consider having any kind of effect on why a record came out at a certain time. But when the you put the lens on it like that, it's really interesting. And and yeah, I mean, I, I came up for me. I watched some of the box. Uh, it was a lot more of yo. Uh, mm -hmm. But I mean, I remember seeing the Unity UNITY video and Who are you calling the bitch? And seeing Yo-Yo for the first time, and no, you can't play with my Yo-Yo. Don't try to play me out. Don't try to play me And being introduced to this really like almost uh, defiant nature mm -hmm. of of hip hop for women that that was explained to me three decades later when I read your book, but just optically for ten year old me, and mm -hmm. seeing you know Kane and Rakim and PE and BDP. And then you get a Latifah or a Light or a Moni Love, you know, like you said, a response to the tenor of hip hop at the time and where we were or where hip hop was, I should say, and the culture at large. And then seven years later, 
you know, you're entering young adulthood and much more liberated, more free speaking and and uh, empowered woman in, in other ways is on the mic and and you're connecting to that. So, I, you know, I just think that that's an awesome thread and I appreciate you breaking it down. But before we get into like the the jigification of, of hip hop and all that, um, I want to rewind it to the roots because, uh, you know, that was kind of like my introduction to hip hop on a local level, being close to Philly or whatever. And maybe chronologically, it's not rewind. I'm not sure. But you mentioned you work for the roots. I know you did some work for Black Lily. And mm -hmm. I, honestly, the, the, the lesson and GD was much of a college education for me as, uh -huh. as school itself, especially being a white male from the Jersey burbs. Like there's a right. lot of real talk in those boards, people breaking shit down on a level that you just didn't get in, in my day-to-day -day life. And those lessons, uh, no pun intended, have served me well in my life as a, as a music fan, as a writer, as commiserating with people of other races and, and such. So uh -huh. Where do you enter into the world of the roots and OK Player, and and how does that manifest into having a role in the iconic Black Lily? I had reached a point when I got to college where the record store just didn't feel like it was enough. I needed to be closer to the music. I didn't know how to get there, but I knew I had to be closer to it. I was an I was an OK Player, Lady Mecca. That was my name. I'm an OK player. I remember that handle for sure. Yeah, L-A-D-I-E. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, it was also my tag name um, back in the day. So I I joined, but I was really only on there for about a, a week before they were looking for uh, street team members because at this point there was a lot of projects that were being pushed through like the okay player promotional pipeline you know things fall apart was coming out you know or this is 99 um then i believe the hurricane soundtrack was coming they were uh there was a song on there the jazzy fat nasties had a project coming um and they were just looking for street team members and i was like okay i can get i can get with this like this is close, right? This is as close to the music as I can get. So I went to um, a Roots concert at Hammerstein Ballroom. And uh, that's where I believe the first person I met was Rozelle. Your mother only knew that you was trying to get with me. Your mother only knew your mother only knew. I might have been Rothel, followed by Amir. Uh, and I was like handing out flyers and stuff like that. And then they were putting together this Black Lily. And from there, I think about this sometimes, like when I'm at my most stressed out and I remember who I was in from 99 to 2000, I think one, uh, I had, so Black Lily was on Sunday night and it really didn't pop off until like midnight, right? Like you could get there like at 10 o'clock, but for what, right? Um, so the best stuff happened in between like 12 and two, right? Right before 
um, it was wrapping up. So I would, I would get there. I would like head into the city. You know, I lived in Jersey. Um, I would park kind of near, you know, cause this is at the wetlands RIP. So I would park near the, in the vicinity of, um, of black Lily. There was a homeless man who had built kind of like his, his little makeshift home right near where I parked. So I would bring him dinner um, on Sundays and like a donut. Uh, there was a Dunkin' Donuts right by my house. So I bring him a donut and some dinner and he would watch my car. Right. And, um, and you know, not that anybody was really going to like steal a neon espresso, but he was, <laughs> he would always just watch my car for me. And, um, and I would bring him dinner um, he was always like super kind because when I would walk back, he would like wait for me, like super cool guy. Um, so I would get there. We would, you know, promote, do whatever they, when they had the open mic, I mean, that's where everything just went like, whoa. And I remember my first night working Black Lily was the night of like the changing of the guard where Scott Storch formally left the roots and Kamal formally joined. And they were telling Scott was there and they were like, Scott, um, tell everyone what you're going to be doing instead. And he played the opening keys to Still Dre. Right. And then everyone's like, oh, like, you know, he was headed, he was headed to Hollywood or whatever to start, you know, working with Dre in like a bigger capacity. So that was like the farewell show for Scott Storch. And that was like, um, I think it was like my first night. I, no, it was definitely my first time at Black Lily. So all of these like crazy moments, you know, would happen. But the thing that I always think about is I would leave and I would probably, I would get home like around 3.30-ish four o'clock ish. And I had an 8am class, an accounting class. Only C I got in college was that class. I would sit at a diner and like literally wake myself up. I wasn't never much of a drinker. So it wasn't like I was sobering up, but I would kind of just sit there and eat breakfast. And then I would go to class and then I would come home and like crash, right? Uh, Monday morning. And I think about that now and I'm like, how did you do that? But you know, it was for the love of the music. And, right. and that was it was just so important to me to be close to what was happening because you just feel something big was brewing within um, a couple months. You know, the roots got the Grammy things just started moving quickly. You started to, you, you saw careers unfolding. You watched like Erica Badu become Erica Badu, Jill Scott getting her record deal watching these things happen right and then eventually artists would pass by and I remember like all different artists when they came to town and I remember one time specifically I believe I, I hope I'm not like mixing up um my uh my work with concerts here but I remember there was one time specifically I had come and someone had come to me like oh you just missed um baby girl Aaliyah was just here and I was like ah <laughs> um, that was like one of those things where I was just like, oh my God, because you know, 
Yeah, those were the kind of like the situations that were happening. These artists would just come in, experience what it was that the roots were building with this community, and then you know, leave. And it, you don't get that anymore. Like you can't, you can't make, you can't manufacture a vibe like that. So we gonna start it all right. Can I get the okay, okay. Can I get the okay, okay. Can I get the okay? special time and I think for someone like myself who started at a record store level and then graduated to that I feel for this generation who has to experience all of this through a phone you know because there was there was magic being in the pit or the magic in the human interaction watching these artists interact before they before they became themselves yeah, it was it was such a glorious time, and and yeah, when you talk about Black Lily, like I got to go to the wetlands for Black Lily once, but mm-hmm. the other part of my DNA besides like hip hop and the roots, or whatever, is like Grateful Dead, Fish, hippie shit, and that yeah. was like home base. Wetlands was like home base for the whole hippie scene. That's how I got hip to that. There was Black Lily there. I was there for another event and saw, you know, poster whatever. But then you know, living in Philly. Uh, Black Lily was at the five spot on Tuesday nights and it was around the corner from the record store that I worked at, which was called Sound of Market. So I had the good fortune of attending a number of the Black Lilies there. And like I said, just much like the boards, it was just like an education for young me. And and in retrospect, just being in the room for the Jazzies, for Kindred, the family. So like just amazing women jaguar right came through like there's i'm trying to remember um three seven thousand nine um the lead singer was uh Nura, and then flo brown flo brown right yeah, yeah. her um what ursula rucker yeah. i mean like just a really incredible and again just introducing me to stuff that i wouldn't otherwise find and that really worked like in concert with being on the boards and and hearing discussions and who inspired who and, and while that's going on, the whole Soul Quarian Revolution and Electric Lady, all the records you referenced, Badu, Jill Scott, D'Angelo, Things Fall Apart, like Water from Chocolate, Bilal, all that to say, like, you had the ability to exist in that world at that time and make relationships and have life experiences that set you on your path. Meanwhile, you're at NYU. Is that that coincide with working at Fat Beats and yeah. being, like in undergrad? So oh, no, uh, grad, 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 graduate school. Okay. Um, 
so take me through that a little bit because then you're we're talking about the the wars the backpack versus big willy era what team are you on and i mean even even the roots got caught up with that on mptv unplugged but uh what was a fat beat scene like at the apex of the underground revolution it was an interesting time because you know where hip-hop was it was just such a strange world that had gone on from um from i think like 99 to 2004 or whenever like that that five years was really it was beautiful but it was toxic right because i think like we're coming off like two years prior to that where the the shiny suit era came in and i actually didn't know as a complete aside i always knew we called it the shiny suit era because of like a suit that puffy wore but I didn't know until I wrote my Aaliyah book that the shiny suit was um, designed by Tommy Hilfiger. Um, and it was a relationship made by Andy for Puffy to wear it at the VMAs, which ignited that entire era as a total aside. Um, but a good nugget. Yeah. It, it's, it's a, it was, um, it was just something that for me, like when I was like doing the book and doing my research, like I was like kind of nerding out at that, that and um, in the book, um, knowing that, um, Alia was cousins with a member of Bootcamp Click. That was crazy. Yeah. The night is major. Read the message flashing on my page. Preparing for what gig in the sold out skater with money makers. Hold the tables down in Vegas. Talking about the game, the homie Kobe from the Lakers. Anyway, yeah, so where where we were at with hip-hop, you know, it did very much feel like you had to take a side. And for someone like myself, at that point, I was, like, head first into the backpack scene. The only things you would hear me hear coming out of my, what, iPod at that point were Dilated People's Defari, Fill the Agony. Like, I was all hieroglyphics. I was really into the West Coast underground. Yes. Oh my God. <laughs> for those for those that uh, are are not on camera, um, he's sporting a hieroglyphics uh, T-shirt. Yeah, like that was all me. Like that that world, I was just completely like sold. I mean, you know, we talked a lot about women in hip hop coming up, but like my favorite group, um, male group coming up was Gangstar. Um, like loved Gangstar and then followed by like Outcast, you know? Um, so for me, by, by the time I got to that era of um, the underground scene, I was just like taken by everything that was going on in LA and the Bay area, like game over for me. Um, and it was like worlds colliding on uh, worst comes to worst with like, you know, guru rest in peace being on the track and, uh, with uh, you know evidence and Raka and Babu and and then a further um, the uh, the sample of Prodigy. Worst come the worst, my people's come first. Word up, and worst comes the worst. I make whole crews disperse. You know it's family first. Gifted unlimited with dilated people. Babu, evidence, Irish science, and a shout out to my man Alchemist on the Trizad.
you know, it's just like, there's, there was just like a lot. Right. And I think like, that's where mob deep also came into my life by way of alchemist going like, you know, being a fan of alchemist who was super cool at evidence and then alchemist coming and working with mob deep. Hey, yo, I break bread, ribs, hundred dollar bills, pill on the cotties and other four wheels, write a book full of medicine and generate mills, tore the album only for more sales. That I think is where my real passion for Mob Deep came. I mean, I was always a fan of Mob Deep's, um, especially since they used to perform at um, the skating rink in New Jersey called the Rink. That time period, there was something so special about what was going on because there really was separation between church and state. I think a lot of what Raucous Records was doing was really just incredible at the time. You know, most deaf, like, oh my gosh, like sound, the sound bombing uh, project, like, holy yep. cow. That, when I think, the, that's the kind of music that when I listen to it, I was listening to Dilated today, as a matter of fact, and like, it just hits, it hits my heart differently. But hip hop, more specifically, was like in an identity crisis, right? You know, because really what was happening, the mainstream was um, adapting to the needs of the greater mainstream hip hop world while the underground was rebelling against it. And like the spoiler was that both were equally important. Hip hop had to evolve financially too. Like artists needed to be able to have access to the money to afford kind of like innovation and evolution, but they still needed to remain pure of heart with what they were doing. And I think like it was a confusing time because, you know, the marketing machines that were surrounding both worlds were kind of creating that divide too. Um, and I, and I do credit groups like the roots for kind of being the difference, right? Like I think they were kind of cut down the middle for me. I always kind of had this back and forth with it because I was such a Lauren Hill fan who could rock with either world, like seamlessly. So that like that time period, and I, I completely like went the other way. You're asking about fat beats. Um, it's all good. I love rabbit holes. That was an interesting time period for me because I was a writer starting out, and the I didn't write for Elemental, right? I didn't write for Mass Appeal. So for me. The, the artists, the groups that I love the most, it was really hard for them to like show up in the source. You had to kind of fight. And and the thing that was so crazy about um, hip hop journalism at that time was what, um, if you so much as like introduced artists like that in the underground as like your taste, it was like you were marked. Right. Because you, then it was like, oh, you know, take that shit to elemental or stress. Remember stress? Right. Yeah. Take, take it over there. And, you know, it, it affected your ability to cover the artists while also like loving the artists. So for me, I had a big win because I was writing for the, also for this magazine called Rhyme. R-I-M-E that was based out in LA and they let me do a feature on tone deaf 
Cause I was like, Oh my God. Um, East coast wise, I was heavy into Q and five. Oh my God. Um, extended fam. Like, Oh my God. Cunning linguist. Like I was like super into Q and five. So they gave, they allowed me to do a feature on tone deaf. And that was like such a big deal to me because I had covered tone with extended fam, um, on at all hip hop as like my first piece. I was supposed to cover um, another group who mistook me for a groupie while I was there um, and called me a chicken head. And EFAM like kind of came to my rescue and they were so kind and their music was so great. That's when I became like a, a super Q and five fan. So um, when I was at Fat Beats, <laughs> bringing it right about <laughs> all the way around, um, it was cool to watch, like, you know, Alchemist would show up sometimes getting to see like your faves, like in real time, but I'll never forget this one time. And I was like, you know, I would like sweep the steps and alphabetize the records, you know? Um, and if I was lucky work, work the register. Um, and then if I was super lucky, uh, get to work the turntables in the back. Right. So, and I could not DJ to save my life at that point. Um, I want to shout out Deep um, from the Two Hungry Brothers who would like try to teach me how to DJ. And he's like, you got to grab the drum and like show me how to <laughs> grab the drum, right? And it was like, it, it, like I just give him so much credit because he, he spent a while trying to teach me how to DJ. And <laughs> let's just say I, I could never be a professor of DJing. Um, but I did know how to blend really well and I knew how to like move like one song into the next. So anyway, long story short, and you, got I'm taste. DJing. you had taste most important. Yes. Yes. I had an ear. I had an ear, yeah. you know, um, my favorite thing to do was alchemist had, a, um, an instrumental album that he had released. Um, and I had the Saturday morning cartoons. And I used to put the Saturday morning cartoon sounds over the Alchemist beats and people used to be like, what? Like, and it just, <laughs> I really felt like I was like, I was like on some shit when I did that. I was like, yeah, like I, I thought I was like premiere. Um, but uh, I, one day, a super underground artist came and um, like, I was like really razor focused on, on these two records. Like I was like, you know, like, like I have to get this right. And I and I remember what it was too. They had I was trying to get you remember Captain Caveman? Captain Caveman. Yeah. Yeah. There was a part of an alchemist beat that I knew would hit really hard if I could just get Captain Caveman to yell over it, right? So I was like listening and I'm like, I'm like, really? I'm like, you you could do it, right? And this artist comes up to me and he like puts his hand up to give me a pound. And I'm like uh, like I, my hands are like hovered over, like I've got one hand, like touching the fader. And then I'm like, I got my other hand on my headphones and I'm like, no, like you can't have my hand right now. And he starts going off on me, like screaming at me. And then I hear, are you crazy? That's Kathy from the source. And it was Sean Price. Yeah, you fucking onion head bass motherfucker. And he was like, 
yo, leave her alone. She's um, she's going to be one of the biggest rap journalists one day. Get get like it doesn't matter if she doesn't want to give you a pound, man. I had this moment where I was like, oh, <laughs> like I felt like the coolest person in the world. He's like, what are you crazy? Like he's and and he's like, she's gonna be one of the biggest. And I was like, am I? Like I was like so appreciative of him though because I was getting yelled at. And I kind of looked at him like, and I just like you know thanked him. He's like, he's like, go ahead, go ahead with your uh, with your uh, with your mix. What, go ahead, what you were doing. And I was like, oh, oh thank you. <laughs> Guys like him, see um, raised walls. Oh my god, there were like there were some like guys who were always there who were just really really like dope humans who were just like really good guys but then there were some guys who weren't nice right like um and you know it was uh it was a mixed bag because I think like I think also at that time we mistook like lyricism for character um and I think there's um some survivors of that era who um are still assumed to be like good humans just because they were strong lyricists and I would like beg to differ but I think like during that time period um those guys were were super cool and um and a lot of the guys who worked with them like um you know my dude Abacus he uh he worked with um oh my god and pen was really dope Breeze ever flowing um I actually did liner notes for Breeze I believe love Breeze um, yeah you to take my men roll like the Lakers, dunks, rainmakers, street game advance, quadruple game breakers, dreams of an R&B chick, plus insane papers, does this thing make us less of an MC, revealing what tempt me, the window of truth, in the land where my life's like a gamble with loot, fuck battles, this is war, we got ammo and troops, y'all bitch niggas, with oversized sandals and boots, come on, I got nothing to prove, plus nothing to lose, so I'm looking at you like, just really good really good dude like where you you felt like safe around them like i like and and as a woman coming up in the industry that's really all you wanted was um a to be respected and understood for your place being there because you know you weren't i wasn't there to um I was there for the music and I sound like I'm an almost famous, right? To, to, for them to understand that that's why you were there to treat you as such was a really big deal. And, and as women, you just want, you just want to be respected for why you're there, but you also want to know that you can feel safe because um, a lot of that era, the real shit popped off after midnight to network things popped off after, after midnight. Fat Beats was probably the only place where I had, I was able to network during daylight hours Without really like booze cool. everywhere. Yeah. And without just right. like worrying about how you were getting to your car. I mean, there was right. like, or even like taking the train. I mean, there was just, it was, it was a very interesting era. I mean, you know, I remember I was, I went to a dilated people's concert in October of 2001. And at, um, I think it was SOBs. And we were still walking in the footprints of the dust from uh, the World Trade Center to get there. You know, the things that you did for hip hop at that time were so different uh, from any era that I had experienced. Even like, I don't want to say too young, but after you didn't, you know, we were, we were just 
we just really loved it. Like we just loved it. And I think that was just, you know, you don't, when you think about like what um, people who, who are experiencing this now, they, they just, they just don't get those kinds of memories. And, and we're just, I, I, we're fortunate. We're fortunate enough to have um, even the good, the bad, the ugly. I'm going to take my time. If I search, I will find. I'm going to take this pace. When I use my mind, I win the race. I'm going to take my time. Gonna take it slowly to make sure that you Yeah, and, and you're not afraid to discuss the stuff that a lot of people compartmentalize or or want to forget happened, whether it's in your work or, or whether in your books or in your articles. Um, you've always kind of just spoken up and centered women. And I, I think that that's, you know, that's pioneering in the hip hop space, in journalism for sure. But I, I definitely want to get into the Aaliyah book. But before that, you referenced your passion for Lauren Hill. I'd have to say, you know, Miseducation is one of my favorite albums that transcends genre. I mean, like 10 favorite albums. It was like my breakup, find myself record in real time back then. You know, anytime you're coming out of a partnership, it is really something strong to lean on. And then in the aftermath of all that, especially since she, you know, hasn't released another like full length LP of original music, mm -hmm. it's just been this iconic like cannon blast of of one human's condition the good the bad and the ugly and then we've been left to like dissect it re-dissect it look within ourselves so what is what is lauren hill well i mean you dedicate two full chapters to her in yeah. god save the queens but for the purposes of this podcast and also maybe to get some folks interested in reading that book what was it about Lauren Hill that kind of like allowed you to or for, made you anoint her in such a way? And and why do you think uh, she's been misunderstood to this day? Well, in God Save the Queens, I do two chapters, one that I would like kind of um, consider the cause and the other the effect um, when it comes to Lauren Hill. And I think that she's an artist who there's no other artist in, in hip hop history who had kind of like this um, very strong divide between two very specific parts of her career. So that's why she got two chapters. It was beyond my like loving her, but it was um, what Lauren Hill did for hip hop is um, always very unrecognized. Um, and I'll get into that in a sec. For, for Lauren Hill, um, 
you know, I became a fan because I, I actually, be, I actually became aware of Lauren Hill in eighth grade because um, a friend of mine, his cousin was DJ Alamo. Alamo, what's your witch name? And um, right. yeah, and he came and he told me, "There's um, there's a girl coming up from Newark um, that you're gonna like, you're gonna probably really like because you know um, she um, she's gonna be in that Sister Act two movie." Um, but she's got like, you know, she's, she's a good rapper and he had like some tape of like her, like a very like raw freestyle that somebody took when the Fugees were doing the battles in Newark against the outsiders. And I was like, oh my God. Right. Like, and I was like, who is this? The waxy residue on your rhyme style is ridiculous. If you're misogynist, then you probably cannot get with this. If you sit with this, we'll leave no witnesses. Uh. See, nobody can touch one job less. And I mean this. What? So I'll be like, oh, And then I saw Sister Act 2 and I was like, what? Um, and then from that point on, I was just a diehard Lauren Hill fan to this day. I think it was the familiarity of Jersey. I think it was Lauren Hill was so curious about the world, just as curious as I was. Like, if you listen to Lauren Hill's music, she packs these references in, like, that are, like, the way she weaves it, like, you know, teach the youth they got more rights than Miranda, tell them this whole shit is propaganda, you know, scribe checks, make the next true pyramid architects, replace your last name with an X. Like, the things that, like, she would say, you know, she started as a poet. So everything just felt like poetry, but also just, like, jam-packing these, like, references of an art, of a, of a person who was just learning to discover the world and did a lot of reading and learning. And in turn, she made me want to read and learn and um, listen to artists that she would reference. I, I literally listened to Nina Simone because of that line on Ready or Not. While you're, listen, uh, while you're imitating Al Capone, I'll be Nina Simone and defecating on your microphone. That's literally why I started listening to Nina Simone. Rap orgies with Orgy and Bess Capture your bounty like Elliot Ness Yes, bless you if you represent the food But I hex you with some witches brew If you do do voodoo I could do what you do Easy Believe me, frontin' niggas give me heebie-jeebie uh. So why you imitating Al Capone? I be needing Simone And defecating on your microphone Ready or not, here I come You can't hide I grew up in a household um, with the Beatles and Joni Mitchell. So uh, Carly Simon, right? And Joan Baez. So for me, like, um, I didn't have a lot of uh, soul music in my house growing up. And Lauren Hill provided me with the ultimate playlist to go back and listen. And it helped that I was working at a record store. So I was able to grab all these CDs and, and listen and learn. Um, she was my greatest teacher in, in music. Um, and I, I, I just, you know, I'm, I'm just so grateful that she exists and I don't care if she doesn't give us another album. She completely doesn't owe us anything, uh, because of what she's already given us. But what I think happened is that when you put that much pressure and you put that much adoration and you put that much responsibility on someone who was only 23 years old. You know, she was 23 when Miss Education came out. And you put all of that onto someone who was at that point 
had a child and was pregnant with her second child. So she's got like two children and she's going through heartache again, you know, reliving it with this album after having had this monumental success at the age of 21, it takes its toll on the spirit. And then, you know, when you turn around and you accuse her of not writing her own material, which she did, right? Uh, even if there was some assistance to go ahead and try to discredit her in a way that I, I think that I think that where she's at right now is like, you know, she just doesn't want to be bothered with the BS of of all of the politics. You know, um, it's just one of those things where we were not kind as an industry to Lauren Hill and we did not um we didn't take care of her genius. And I think it took its toll on her. I think that also the way that people responded when they didn't get what they wanted out of her just shows um, how awful and cruel this industry can be. And I was very fortunate to catch the Fugees on my mother's birthday, on my late mother's birthday in 2021. I was fortunate to catch the Fugees for that first and last concert that they were going to do for the reunion. I have seen Lauren Hill perform about 13 times, but I never saw the Fugees together. So I was really fortunate that I got to see them because then that, um, that whole tour fell apart. With his words killing me softly. Yeah. With his song. If you know this classic, let me see your hands up in the air right now. Let's go. As we proceed, we got T-Bots on the bay. But it was like a beautiful moment because I had been, you know, we were coming out of the pandemic. You know, my mother had been, it had been like about two years or so since my mom had passed away. Um, and after being in the house for so long, like getting to go to a Lauren Hill, I, I call it a Lauren Hill concert. I don't care. <laughs> getting to go to a Lauren Hill concert on my mother's birthday. I feel like it was a gift that my mother sent me from the heavens. Right. Um, but getting to experience Lauren Hill, for that one last time in that moment. I will still, I've been to Lauryn Hill concerts, like fuck the bullshit, like with the whole, oh, you know, she's late. I I've, I don't, I have never been to a single concert that starts on time. Like don't even like cut it out. So that whole thing, like, you know, I, I would, I'd wait till the next morning to see Lauryn Hill perform. I don't care. Getting to see them together was, was a really special moment. Uh, you can ask anyone, you can ask, Anyone from my family to quest love, I will fall on my sword for Lauren Hill. <laughs> like, I just... It's understandable. It's understandable. And I, I get that. I've seen her perform probably four four times, give or take. And first of all, people wait for Erica Badu. They wait for Axel Rose. Exactly. I mean, it's not it's not unique to Lauren. And 
you're right. Like the industry and society. I mean, I just can think of all those magazine covers and like her dialed up and just being this sort of like assembly line of celebrity that she was there shoving her into while she's a young mother pregnant again. I mean, too much. It's predat- it's predatory and exploitive mm-hmm. and and takes and takes. So I really thought it was poignant both how you described it right now and in the book about what she gave to hip hop and then what hip hop and 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 the culture and society took from her and and now we're even and she doesn't know us shit. Yeah, that that rap on um on Nas's uh, uh album. If I rule the world. No, no, no. Oh, uh, the new one, the new one. Ugh. When she t- she basically tells her whole story. Yeah. And I'm like, you know, I I I sobbed when I heard that rhyme. <laughs> Some place to be nobody. 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 All my time has been focused on my freedom now Why would I join them when I know that I can beat them now They put their words on me and they can eat them now That's probably why they keep on telling me I'm needed now They tried to box me out while taking what they want from me I spent too many years living too uncomfortably Making room for people who didn't like the labor But wanted the spoils, greedy, selfish behavior Now let me give it to you balanced and with clarity I don't need to turn myself into a parody I don't I do not do the shit you do for popularity They clearly didn't understand when I said I get out apparently Yeah, I mean, because you feel it and, and you're connected to her and her plight and her struggle And, you know, I love that about you as a writer And, and as just like a personality, like the passion Whether it's what you're talking about with Lauren in the book or right now or Prodigy, you're just like a protector by nature. Like, I don't know where that comes from, but I've just noticed that regardless of your topic or the artist, it's a very, you're, you're concerned with protecting them and, and like setting the story straight on their terms and not what the narrative that the, the, industry one and, and that applies to prodigy and that applies to lauren that applies to Aaliyah. Yeah. um certainly applied to like roxanne shante in in the early days right so it's kind of been like a common theme and before we jump into Aaliyah, which actually i'm really intensely emotionally connected to Aaliyah's music i love lauren hill's album like that right. but for whatever reason i have a really intense passion and love and and almost like obsession with Aaliyah's story and, and her music and her and so much I didn't know until I read the book. But um, with reg- I know chronologically Prodigy happens first. So um, you're like editor and contributor to a bunch of hip hop websites. I know like allhiphop.com and a few others. And I remember that era where the, the transition from like magazine to digital mm-hmm. and the blog era and so forth. And And out of that comes a book project with Prodigy. You know, and I unfortunately have a life experience doing some time myself. So I remember spreads in jail mm. well and teaming up. You got this. I got that spreading out. I mean, it was something brought people together of different races and different situations. And, um, you know, in, in being in a horrible place, it was like one of the cooler things that happened was like spreads, you know. So how do you connect with Prodigy and like how did you come upon the project of because I assume he probably didn't do any t- any real time uh, uh, writing that with him and and any reflections you have on on Prodigy and that book. When you when you say that like I I protect Prodigy, um, yes, but Prodigy was my protector. 
Um, and I think that um, he was family. So I, I think it was, it's, um, you know, not that, you know, I, I, I protect the narratives of um, especially subjects and humans that I hold near and dear to my heart, but when like he, he was different, you know, um, but the way that Prodigy and I started working together, um, I had met Mob Deep like over the years um, in hip hop, but nothing like um, on this like very like close like level. But I did an interview with Prodigy. I was one of the first interviews that he did when he got out of prison. I went and then um, he was doing Albert Einstein, I think with Alchemist. And we, we had gone to lunch one day and he said to me that he wanted to do um, a book, a prison cookbook, because he had just done his prison memoir. Shout out to Laura Checkaway, um, incredibly talented Laura Checkaway. He had just done that book, My Infamous Life. And he wanted to do like this kind of like prison cookbook or something where he can like talk a little more in depth about the details of what was going on in prison and and set it to kind of like the food because he had lifestyle, his eating habits up when he was in prison because he was so concerned about um, dying there. Like he thought the nutrition alone, a lack of nutrition alone was going to kill him. So, you know, we had had this conversation. He was like, yeah, I've been thinking about doing this. Um, and I was like, wow, like that sounds like a great project. And he's like, yeah, would you want to do it with me? And I was like, hell yeah, I would. And he's like, yeah, like I'll, I'll hit you up. And I was like, okay, you know, I had done, you know, I done research, you know, for Jay-Z's Decoded, but that was like the extent of like my book experience. I hadn't, hadn't done like a book thing, you know, in a while. And I was like, wow, okay, maybe, maybe he'll call me one day. And then sure enough, a couple of years later, I get this call like, hey, are you ready? And I was like, wait, really? He was on tour. I think he was, you know, he was touring like Europe and like Dubai. And, and we were having this whole conversation. Like he brought food, he would bring food with him on his tours because um, that's just how much he was just like so focused on trying to eat healthy and not getting sick. Like he didn't want to get like food poisoning. That was like a big thing for him to not get sick. We spent a lot of the time talking over like Skype and um, getting stuff ready for, for the book. But at the same time, we were also putting together a book that will never see the light of day now, but it was called the state versus Albert Prodigy Johnson. And it was a book about what would happen with P with the hip hop task force after he got out. And we kind of were doing commissary kitchen uh, side by side with um, state versus Albert Prodigy Johnson. And like, we just had like these, like, you know, we were having a lot of conversations. And then when he came back here, I would go to by him in Brooklyn. And he's like, where do you, where do you live again? I was like, Jersey. He's like, you like it? And I was like, yeah. I was like, it's cool. And like a couple of months later, he hits me. He's like, yo, I'm like your neighbor now. And I was like, what? And he like moved like maybe like about 10 minutes from me. And he would, uh, he would like send me Ubers to like go and like, we would like, you know, map out like what we were going to do with the books and stuff. So, um, but then, you know, Commissary Kitchen came out and we had this incredible book tour 
right? And like um, him and his manager, Marvis, were like the guys that like, I mean, I literally went and Marvis is, is still one of my best friends in the entire world. So like my mother used to say, well, like when I would go on these tours, I would have to be out like super late. Or if I was up there, like at Prodigy's house, my mom would like, I would be like, oh, I'm heading to peace, you know? And like my mom always knew I was like super safe. If like I was with P or I was with Marvis, like my mother never had any worries. And like, I still have her copy that was signed from P of Commissary Kitchen. And he put like to the best mom in the world. <laughs> it's just like, oh. yeah, they had like, they had a special relationship, but, uh, you know, prodigy. Ah, man. The day before yesterday, I was telling people, you know, when um, when Lola passed away, you know, Gangsta Boo, who was another very, very dear friend of mine, I was telling a friend of mine, I was like, it feels like I lost P again. Um, and it's kind of like, it's a different kind of loss when um, you share that person with the entire world, right? It's kind of like, it's all over your social media. And you're just watching it all day, every day. It kind of brought back that what I felt, which is now going on, wow, six years since he's been gone. <sighs> Jesus. But that loss that happens, you know, um, it's it, it hits differently because it's always in your face. Um, and when people know and understand uh, your friendship with those artists, they always somehow connect you to them. You know, I'm still tagged in Prodigy stuff. Um, to this day, if somebody spray paints a wall, someone from France will tag me in that photo. And, and I appreciate the connection and the affiliation. Um, but for someone like myself, who is actually still grieving, you know, it is harder to, um, you're just always seeing it. Right. And I, and I do protect Prodigy's legacy and I'll protect Lola's too. Um, but I have to say, I'd be I'd be lying if he wasn't more of a protector to me. Remember me, the one you got the rhyme style from. Remember P, the one you got your rhyme style from. Yeah, my condolences on Lola. You know, I, I saw your tweet and stuff, you know, and honestly, like, when you see the way, like, the fucking blogs and shit just like jump all over stories um and exploit stuff you know i think of people like you especially in, in this situation what that must be like to just have these 
you know, half-baked stories with with a lot of wrong information. And even if it's right, it's not appropriate. So just wanted you to, I just wanted to acknowledge that, that I, I know it sucks. You know, and, it, and it's like, I, I think that losing P, um, that was a big reason why I stopped wanting to really work in journalism as much as I wanted to start books more actively because um, I saw where music journalism was going. And as someone who had to even fiercely defend the truth of how my friend died, um, and even now having to fiercely defend the truth of how my friend died, I didn't want to be part of that anymore. I didn't want to be part of um, clickbait and headlines um, and the weird shit. So a no brainer for me to kind of um, begin the transition out of um, where that version of music journalism was going. You know, I'm still really big on like liner notes and, and features where I'm able to actually speak on a human level to an artist, but I'm not about the bullshit of like asking like, who are you beefing with today? Like that, like, I see my friends' faces on the faces of these artists, even if I'm not their friends. And like, I don't, um, in the same way that I wouldn't want my friends' stories exploited, I'm not going to do that to them. For me, it was like, it, it just was no longer a good fit. And I think that's also where I kind of made the decision to really ramp up my media coaching business. Because the one thing that I can do is I can teach artists and prepare them for the people who are kind of out to be vampires in the media and figure out how to navigate the stories that they're about to tell so that they don't fall victim to those headlines. Cause those headlines can be dangerous. You know, it, it, yeah. it was a headline that took down Biggie and Tupac and we forget yeah. that time and time again, we forget that it was a headline that created that war essentially. That's not to say that my media coaching or my advice is going to, you know, save people's lives. But if I can at least prepare these artists and have them understand that, you know, I mean, we don't really have a, we don't really have like the the tangible newspapers that we use that much anymore. But I always say, you know, today's news lines, tomorrow's birdcage. So if you can get past that headline for that day, um, and just like remain emotionally unsafe, you'll just be that much closer to just being able to focus on your work um, and not the, the, the static around you. I normally like would point the finger to like the TMZification, but when you take it back to Biggie Tupac, it's like the vibe cover is what, like how many years ago? Mm -hmm. And it's the same sort of fan the flames, irresponsible thing that turns into like death, you know? So, that sucks. And, and your obviously your, your ability, your talent, your relationships and the stories that you're inclined to tell enabled you to make that pivot into long form and books. And even like, you know, your website, which is badass, by the way, your website is really dope. Um, and you and you look at your stories. I mean, it is they're they're human stories. They're not clickbaity. They're not breaking news. These are you know profiles and deep dives and issues and ideals and values and, and human stories. And that's like what I strive for personally. So to see you out there doing it on your own terms, writing the books you want to write, you know, it's inspiring, which brings me to the Aaliyah thing. Maybe you don't know what you do to me. Between me and you, I feel like
everybody but her and she's not around to tell it and and obviously it's 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 tied to just a lot of ugliness in the industry and in in, in society um but her story itself is incredibly beautiful and her art is is was pioneering and revolutionary and and it's always hung on someone else's mantle <laughs> but not her own you know someone else is responsible right. you know and so many people whether it's you know, we have, I just have to spit it out, whether it's the R. Kelly thing or whether it's people attributing her revolutionary sounds to Tim and Missy or whether she was Dame Dash's fiance. Like right. it's anything but Aaliyah. Right. Mm -hmm. And like, uh, you took the opportunity to rewrite that story in no uncertain terms. Um, really raw, emotional, tough topography to read. Mm -hmm. So I can only imagine what it was like to write and the conversations you had to have. And, and I talked about this a bit with Dan Charnas with relation to people's different memories of things with Jay Dilla and, and how that affects relationships now that he's not gone or now that he's gone, he, he can't kind of correct the record. And I imagine you had to navigate two sides, three sides to different stories, uglier stories than are affiliated with, with James. So my question or questions would be, uh, like what was the defining thing that said, I'm going to write the story of Aaliyah and, and what were some of the more tricky or difficult things you had to navigate in bringing that project to the finish line under your terms? You know, I was coming out of, I had finished God Save the Queens. Uh, my mother had passed away and I was trying to figure out what I was going to do next, you know, in terms of books. Um, because in the publishing world, you know, if you want to be a career author, you can't play the game of one book every five years and, and just continue to shop it. Like that's, that's not how this world works. You have to just keep on writing and you have to keep on coming up with ideas or come up with people that you're going to collaborate with. I couldn't leave God Save the Queens and not do something that I felt was like super meaningful. Um, and I really just wanted to do right by Aliyah's story. And and I don't even want to say rewrite history, but just kind of like fix some of the story that had been going on or, or, or move certain characters out of the focus. And 
when I got the book deal, it's, it's really ironic that we're having this conversation because right now, as we're talking, surviving R. Kelly is airing and I'm on it talking about her. Um, but when I took these interviews, like for the book and I put together this proposal, I completely left him out and people were just like, why would like, you know, how are you like, you can't leave him out. And I was like, but I can, right. But I, I can leave him out. And, you know, people were, they were throwing these like huge deals my way to put them in. And I was like, I knew that um, if I was going to put them in, it was going to be on my own terms. And I didn't want there to be like some sort of price tag attached to it because that didn't feel right to me because then that feels like I'm capitalizing off um, her pain, which is not something that I wanted to do. So when I got my book deal, it was with the understanding that I was not going to include him, but through my research and conversations um, and access to like documents and things, I realized that leaving him out was only going to continue that story uh, that was incorrect about the two of them. So then I made the decision to put him in after uh, all of that. And it was, it was about two chapters, but even those two chapters, I received a lot of backlash, like the whole book's about him. I'm like, well, obviously then you only got like an eighth of the way through the book. Cause he doesn't get mentioned at all. Like really after that. So whatever. But I did want to talk about how, what she endured and then also how the music industry was so ruthless in practically blackballing her for leaving artists and producers reluctant to work with her, her being booed at shows and award show ceremonies for leaving. I mean, the things that we forget or, you know, choose to never even think about that, that she endured and then becoming this icon after the fact, in spite of all that stuff. Um, that's the story. Right. And I think that like the trickiest part of it was staying as honest as possible in the interest of protecting or honoring Aliyah. And when you do that, there are other players in that that might take umbrage to that, because when you're making her the focus for the first time, there's a problem with that to some people that that's the tricky, that was the trickiest part about it. And also understanding that there's an entire generation of people, kids, children, children um, who have kind of like taken, like gravitated toward the legend of Alia and have kind of like made her this like piece of like iconography in the in the way that like like it's like you know there's people on the internet they'll doctor photos of her to look more like they want her to look um i saw there was one um somebody had photoshopped a hijab around her um they'll they'll change 
change her skin tone. They'll change her body proportions. They'll make her, it's kind of like, like if you go into, um, you know, a black household and the Santa is black versus the white household where the Santa might be white. It was like that, like you, you watch as this generation that never got to experience Aliyah in real time because they're just teenagers now. So they weren't even here when she walked the planet. They're sitting here and they're manipulating photos of her to look like something that they want to connect to. Um, and for me, I'm like, hey, like, I love that for you. But um, I still have a story to tell. And you don't have to read the book. As a matter of fact, if, if you're super young, I urge you not to. Right. But this story is going to get out one way or another because she's nobody's fucking Santa Claus. Okay, you know, she's someone who actually existed and someone who actually something truly traumatic and someone who became a massive icon. And I'm sorry that doesn't fit your, you know, Photoshop image of her, but um, I got a job to do uh, respectfully. What would you do to get to me? What would you say to have your way? Would you give up or try again? If I hesitate to let you in, how would you be yourself? I'll play your role, tell all the boys, don't keep it low. If you say no, would you turn away or play me off? Or would you say, oh? at the time that it was all happening writing this book in the middle of the pandemic where people are dying still getting over losing my mother um and then a year later getting doxxed um because of what I put in the book, but also um, not because of what I put in the book, because people read a headline that was incorrect. Um, and, uh, and, you know, just like a bunch of like other accusations that weren't true. Um, now that I like out of like leaving the fog of all of that, I, I get messaged from the same people that were kind of like, uh, condemning me and telling me, oh, I finally read the book and that's a pretty damn good book. And you really, really, wow, you really loved this artist. Like you really loved her. Um, like we do. And I'm like, yeah, like, you know, you can learn a lot when you, when you go past, uh, the front cover of the book or page one, page two, page R Kelly, whatever. Um, there was a message to that book. And now, you know, a year and a half removed from it, I can say that I, I feel better about um, the situation than I did when the book first came out because um, a lot of people didn't read the book, they reacted to the book. Um, and I know that like at the heart of it, I still told the story about one of my favorite artists and I painted her in the greatest light possible. 
And as we watched the dominoes fall for the other guy, I still know that like I create I, I created a story where um I still held her in the highest light. And I and, and I and I maintain that and I stand by that. But um that was not an easy book for me. <laughs> that was, you know, um it was a hard book to write. It was a hard book to promote. Um and it's a hard book to think about. But um I think when you're when you're trying to tell stories, it's not always supposed to be easy. Because if that were the case, everybody would be writing books and telling stories. And that's just not the case. Thank you for taking it there, first of all. And and you drew one line directly to the next, which is we, we shed the clickbaity fucking gotcha journalism for stories that matter, stories that tell human and and art humans and art and all that. And then it was that clickbait bullshit that came for you. You know, I remember that a little bit, you know. And I and to be honest, like I first reached out to you in the aftermath of the book release. But I'm actually grateful that I'm talking to you now and not necessarily when you're in the thick of that heavy promotional like pressure to, you know, sell your book on the internet and 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 talk to this person and talk to that person and then get caught up in she said this, she did that. Like, I, you know, I'm glad that I didn't add to that or ask for your time during that. And also to hear a more reflective version of your experience now, 18 months down the line into a new project. I also think it was unfortunate and fortunate timing with uh, the, the streaming announcement and her music coming out that both was fortuitous because now Ali is in the news again. But it almost paints you as an opportunist right. by putting the book out at that time, which we know was not the case because that announcement didn't come till you were right before the finish line. You were, you know, nine tenths of the way there before that even. And 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 also, you had a real look under the engine as to what that fucking bullshit about keeping them keeping those albums off of streaming and who was responsible and what their vested interest was. And you know, I'll let people read the book to find out how that you know spaghetti was made but the bottom line is uh people were deprived from her most important music the music that was not connected to him right for two decades and and with that all those kids that are dragon dropping my you know fisher price my first Aaliyah, whatever they're doing online with their photoshop mm -hmm. they don't have the records or her story or or really know anything and then it's an avalanche it's you get the albums surviving is on TV and the book is coming out, mm -hmm. you know, and of those three, you know, it's funny. My mom just texted me today about surviving because I mentioned I was talking to you relative to Aaliyah and, and yeah, it's like really just amazing. The, and, and I got to hand it to you, the role you had in, in contributing to those stories being told on a television screen and in a printed book and, and not sacrificing your integrity or your values or, or your intention for any reason other than your own. And and that's like, you know, a unicorn these days in, in, in journalism and publishing, certainly in hip hop, which has been so commodified and, and is, is a long way from uh, ladies first, you know. But at the same time, I remember going to the Wawa mm -hmm. on that August night and picking up the Philadelphia Daily News. And that was how I found out mm -hmm. that she had passed. 
I remember the feeling picking up the paper. And and I held I had it, the actual Daily News, Philly Daily News, for years and years with her. And I still have the vibe the with the white cover. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. you know, like so I, I had even back then an affection for her, although I was not well versed in her story or what she was about. I just loved her voice over that production and her dancing and, and just the version of Aaliyah that was presented to me through a television or through the speakers mm -hmm. in 99, 2000, 2001. Now, 20 years later, it's, it's a different thing. And, and I wanted to just touch on, it's important that you brought up, like in the book, you talked about photo shoots uh -huh. and, and who the stylist was and the photographer and what she was wearing. And at the time I was just like, wow, that's really interesting details you know, specific. But now I realize like you're letting people know what ain't real. Like these, she did a finite amount of photo shoots and, and you're going to see some bullshit, her wearing a hijab or some costume. And this is your way of letting the world know no, that's not real. These are the photo shoots in circulation and, and they're few, really. There's not that many. Right, right. And, and you let us know. And then I actually took the time to go back and look, you know, to see what you were describing. You know, I was doing the audio book, too, so I could do it while I was listening. Right. But I just like, you know, as as somebody who writes and reads and has an interest like that detail stuck with me and it didn't click why until right now. And that's pretty, pretty awesome. Did you uh, take anything away from, uh, like, w could, would you do anything different having lived through the sort of firestorm in the aftermath? Would you write anything different? Would you have done anything uh, on the promotional tip different? Or is that just how it had to play? I'll tell you right now, I would have not brought flowers to her uh, gravesite, at least not at that time. I had always frequently visited the cemetery. But people misread that as me trying to promote my book, which I was not doing. I was bringing her flowers um, because I wanted to thank her. You know, in 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 a different world, we'd be promoting the book together because there's still a part of me. I don't care what anyone says. Like, I would have been writing this book with her if she were here. Um, I would have been the person she would have worked with. And I'm, I, I, I'm confident of that. So I brought flowers to um, her gravesite. To the mausoleum to to thank her and um you know they that was misread as promoting i mean somebody said i was like <laughs> it was so funny it was not funny but i mean the rumors like and, and that's another reason why like when i say that like 
I want no part of clickbait or any of those things is because like I've like firsthand experienced what it's like to have people completely lie about you. Somebody said that I had a folding table with like books outside. <laughs> I was like, wait, what? Like standing outside of a cemetery selling books. And I'm like, this is just like horrific. And um, no, that's not what happened. I literally brought her flowers and I brought my mother flowers on that day, the day the book came out. Those are the two things I did. You know, people, people thought it was like some sort of like, cute book promo op and it really wasn't I mean and maybe it's because um there are so many people who were either in Alia's orbit who weren't or weren't who didn't have the purest intentions and adoration for her as an artist and a genius and I can understand why maybe they would question the authenticity and the heart of the person who was writing this book because maybe they never had that um, level of protection for her um, so I can understand why maybe they would um, question my my desire to even do the project. But I can rest assure you, even out of the storm, it was because I was a fan of Aliyah's and um, and I was in the circles and I was I was listening in on these conversations of how she was positioned and spoken about even after she passed. And I wanted to, in some way, highlight the parts of her genius that we never spoke about. Right. So, you know, I did this book with purest intentions and, um, you know, I maintain that. But I think um, if I were to say that I regret anything, it would it would definitely be that um, maybe it would have been a different day to bring the flowers. I don't know. I really like when the book came out, like I was like I had all this TV stuff and all this promo and it didn't feel good to me because she wasn't there. And no one understood, right. like, no one, like, and maybe that does not sound believable, but I, I promise you the day that the book came out, it didn't feel right because she wasn't there. And that was really what the motive was for me to bring the flowers and, and be like, Hey, like, I really wish you were here. And I, and I think that like, I hadn't really thought about the impact of the loss so many years later until that moment right like I was like you know I was one of the fans that um when I learned of her passing I was like crying my eyes out and um driving home my mother being okay and like me having to explain what happened but like when you look at all the artists who are out now who have taken so many pages from her playbook and we're in this moment where the music is out and it's like almost like she's back but she's not. So so weird. Yeah, and and it was really sad. It was sad as a fan. And I was happy that I wrote the book, but I was sad because she was here but she wasn't. And there was like a whole trial going on and that was gross. That was happening. I mean, there's some redemption to that story, but there was so much going on and really it was just like in that moment, it was really overwhelming for to be an Alia fan, let alone to be the person who wrote the biography. It was a lesson for me to remember as much as you're a fan, you're an author and you're a public figure and you have a different set of responsibilities going forward. You <laughs> know, lesson learned, um, you know, and I, I kind of like that for me is like probably the only thing that I would change. I also would, um, 
have uh, really asked to review every headline before they hit <laughs> the streets, but I can't control those things, right? And it really got me, the thing that upset me the most was not how they mishandled my telling of the story, but how um, uh, how they continued to, um, how the, the, the media continued to focus in on the stuff that I was hoping we could kind of like move past. So that was like something that was like a real bummer too, you know? Um, yeah. And like, and for me, I'm like, you know what? Attack me. I can, I can take it. Stop attacking her. The internet can, you know, they can do what they want. They can hang out on Twitter. They can talk their little talk, but um, just, uh, just make sure you keep and hold Aliyah's name in reverence. That's all I say. It's fucked up, though, that that anyone would comment on whatever method you chose to honor, grieve, um, or even, like, celebrate the accomplishment of telling her story. Like, anybody who's talking shit, where's their book? What are they doing for anyone's legacy, let alone hers? And, like, uh, like you said, if you read past the first two chapters, it's very clear where your heart and intention are. And I had a visceral emotional reaction to the book, especially uh, to the scene when they're trying to convince her to board the flight. That was fucking gripping. Yeah. Um, taking us, like talking to the taxi drivers, taking us in the van with her while the arguments are going on. Like it was traumatic to listen and read. Right. And that's just a testament to your, your talents as an author, as a storyteller, and also I don't even know if I have a word for it, but it's like her death was like beyond unnecessary and so avoidable that it's infuriating. And when you really broke it down, that it was like a time crunch on a plane rental plane rent. and 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 fucking weight of luggage at the end of the day, it, like I, it really just makes you mad. And and. I, again, that's just me, a reader and a fan. So you having talked to the family, having all these tales recounted right down again to like the staff at the airport and all that. And for you to be able to like process that and formulate that in a way where it is a gripping narrative. And then for people to uh, to just take the clickbait or the headlines or whatever and, and reduce the project to the bullet points of drama when it's such a riveting tale that was a big part of why I wanted to speak with you and place a focus on what it is for real and not what people wanted to tell you it was. And, and cause I read the book and I came away com completely on a different perspective. I never I cast any aspersions going in and certainly not coming out. And I hope you realize that anybody that read the book feels that way. You know, at least I hope that was communicated to you in the interim year and change. Yeah, eventually, you know, I think um, I, you know, I get it. This was someone's daughter, someone's sister, you know, someone's niece. Um, and and you're telling a story about someone who then becomes part of the world, right? I get, like, I, I get why there was a lot of pushback with it and why, and I understand the challenges, you know, um, and I hope that anyone who was close to her would read the book and, and understand like just how much I actually adored her and um, wanted to tell her story. 
um, in the most respectful way possible. You centered her and not these other characters. And that and that's the thing. You're like, yeah, she it, it placed Alia front and center. And even when you're telling the other parts of the story, it's telling the story of how Alia left um and rose like the phoenix right and and was able to kind of like become this this icon on her own terms and completely change r&b music forever you know we talk you talk about like the all r&b girls that are out right now they're just really they're from the alia family tree oh yeah scissor her all of them yeah all and 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 they'll they won't um they won't deny that either right like it's not as if uh you know people are hiding uh that fact but i think that um it's a beautiful thing that you can listen to like a SZA project and then you can like switch over now and listen to an alia project like all on the same streaming platform and not have to dig for a cd or vinyl i think that that's wonderful because for so long, the only album that was available were providing royalties that were going into someone's pocket. And he, you know, shouldn't have that money, right? You know, with he being, you know, he who should, mm-hmm. shall not be mentioned. It's still, it's not an easy story to tell, and I totally get it. And it's not an easy story to hear, and I totally get that too. I, I made it a point after all the all the shit had gone down to like stop looking right and then one day i kind of like put in the the book and my name and all this other stuff and i screenshotted all these tweets of all these people having this conversation about how good the book was and then being like kind of like like whoops and i'm like you know (laughs) for my own personal records just to like look back on them and be like okay you you know you you set out you set out to do a job and and the job actually happened like mission accomplished you did it i don't know if i could um ever tell that challenging of a story again without um the person still being able to be here and talk about it um i don't know maybe maybe not maybe i will but i don't know um where i'm at right now i don't i don't see it yeah it's hard and and yeah i'm glad that at least you have some closure in that regard and i hope more people discover the book from here in this pod and other pods. And I mean, you know, you've got the credentials and the relationships and like the receipts, as the kids say, you've been outside a long time. Uh, but that said, like people like I'm a white dude, you know, so I get it. Like sometimes people wonder why I have anything to say about anything. So the same, you know, a white woman in hip hop and R and B writing the untold story of this lionized deified, you know, siren long departed, like people are going to want ownership of that in front of you. And that just is how it is. And hopefully, you know, your work does the talking as far as I'm concerned, it does. And I know I'm not alone in that. Been watching you like the hawk in the sky. That cry for you on my prey. Boy, I promise you, if we keep open heads, I know that one of these days we gon' go get up, probably talk on the phone. But see, I don't know if that's good. I've been holding back this secret from you. I probably shouldn't tell it, but if I
But with regard to like people who are still here, I got I got two more, one about class and one about your forthcoming project. Uh, you teach a class on Lana Del Rey at NYU, which I found to be really interesting, A, because it's not hip hop. Mm -hmm. And yeah, of course, she's still with us, but also a lightning rod, misunderstood, cast aspersions on, and, and at the same time, a pioneering, really just unicorn artist, if there ever was, right. especially in this manufactured, homogenized pop star age. So again, uh, why choose her? And what is your course? You know, give me the synopsis. I I have, um, you know, the bulk of my career has been hip hop journalism, but I, I, um, I also do cover other genres and, and other um, discussions like on women, especially in music. So when when I was putting together this um, this course, I was thinking about how like Lana Del Rey, I don't want to call it the invention, but I'll say the, like popularizing the sad girl theory, uh, sad girl theory in pop music, which is a source of empowerment through sadness. It's a stark contrast of like the sad girls of the nineties. Um, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> a stark contrast to the sad girls prior to the nineties, right. Where um, when we eased into the era of your Fiona Apples and your Tori Amos's, that's where you, you know, found the genesis of this sad girl music, but where you listen to like a song like Jolene, for example. Um, and there's just a lot of pining for men. Right. And when you got into the nineties, it was focusing in on the disposability of men and, and, and the sadness that they can't like find these feelings for these men. Right. Or like they, they're sad about destroying men, you know, like, Q, uh, if you're Ani DeFranco, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but also like Fiona Apple, I've been a bad girl, I've been careless with a delicate man, like that whole kind of like self loathing because you can't find it, um, to want to commit or to to find the capacity to be with, um, in, in a functioning relationship. That is a different kind of sadness, it's almost like an empowering one where you're minimizing the men in the story and, um, you're kind of like amplifying your own emotions. So when you get to a, a point of like Lana Del Rey's version of sad girl pop music, it's this combination of the Jolene era of sad girls mixed with the Fiona Apple of sad girls and kind of like slapped together um, and set to like this, um, you know, black and white, uh, tinted uh storytelling with hints of like old timiness and, and americana and kind of like telling why why were so many young artists and beyond the fans why did these artists then take from her and apply it to their own music and and the course really just kind of centers in first we talk about kind of like who, what the Lana Del Rey mosaic is, right? Um, you know, you're talking about a metaphysics major at Fordham mm -hmm. who like read a lot of Nietzsche. There's so many callbacks to philosophy in her music, but I think we like listen with our eyes, right? So for the course, we kind of, we, we dig deeper into the references, all the films that Lana Del Rey like list, uh, watched and, and even her own musical, um, influences like an Amy Winehouse, for example, or, or Kurt Cobain, um, calling herself the gangster Nancy Sinatra. Then we go into 
how she managed to galvanize this fan base. But then we also go into societal discussions, like what was going on. I, like the reason why Lana Del Rey became so famous so fast is because the marketing campaign of women in music at the time was like, fight like a girl. And all of this, like, be strong, be this, be that. While women, percentage-wise, psychologically, were at their weakest, mentally and emotionally. So it was like, don't tell me to fight like a girl. Like, I need a space to be upset. I'm hurting. I'm struggling out here. And Lana provided that safe space. That is where the heart of all these other artists that kind of continued in that fashion, your Billie Eilish's, for example, were able to kind of like take from that. Well, she's not a hip hop artist. I mean, she has collaborated with a lot of uh, hip hop artists, but it's still kind of an extension of what it is that I do, which is like when I'm speaking about women in music, we have one version of the story. And like, I kind of make it my job to be like, well, when you turn it this way, how does the story look now? And that's really what I wanted, what I did with the Lana course is, you know, we have these kinds of built-in assumptions. Always get it right. Let's be very honest. A lot of the time she doesn't get it right um, because of how um, everything outside of the music is a different kind of an expression of like what the core messaging is. But sometimes that gets completely convoluted. But like in the course, I just kind of keep turning the image and rotating it and discussing it at all different angles. And that's really what made up the entire course is just taking that panoramic view and kind of just rotating it with each lecture and us just kind of like pointing stuff out and discussing it. It was a really great course. I'm like, um, I hope we get to do it in the fall. The, the students did not know what to expect when you're doing a course on an artist. I think sometimes people think that you're just going to sit and listen to music all day, which we did listen to some songs, but I don't think they ever bargained like reading like Nietzsche um, right. as part of the course, but here we are. And um, yeah, I really enjoyed teaching it. I really enjoyed teaching it. I mean, that's important too, to enjoy it and to, to have a passion for the content. And it, it comes across in, in the way a professor would impart it for sure. Um, with regard to uh, Lana's, like it's a real time uh, through the looking glass like the antithesis of the Aaliyah situation. This is a star or an artist, I should say, uh, that your students would know in real time. And they've come up as she's come up. You know, if they're in college, chances are they were, you know, high school and middle school on her glow up. So it's just a different thing entirely for you to be able to, you know, shoehorn or I should say like alter what you do in the book form 
to teach a class, you know, it's again, a testament to, I know like you consider yourself a lot of things, not just an author, not just a journalist, not just a teacher. And that all comes into play in a project like this. to talk too much about your current project but uh i know you have announced it and it's a book about lil kim yeah which is a, a, in line with uh you know telling centering women in hip-hop and pop culture and uh empowerment and breaking the mold pioneer she checks all the boxes so without divulging anything about what you can't what drew you to kim uh specifically um and any reflections you have on her as an artist from a fan perspective huh. Um, Kim is one of my favorite artists of all time. And um, there was their synergy there because um, she was close to prodigy. So there was, um, it, it felt right. Uh, besides wanting to tell her story with her being, and she was, you know, incredibly close to Aliyah. So this is just, you know, um, it, it felt right. And, you know, Kim is someone who I think, another person who has consistently had the story written for her and her being able to finally tell her story, I think is incredibly important. And um, being able to help her with that was, was kind of, you know, it was, it was a huge career defining moment for me, especially having started with like God save the Queens and um, getting to work with her. You know, um, but I, you know, I've been a Kim fan forever. You know, um, Lil Kim is the reason why I became a hip hop journalist. I <laughs> approached her at a TGI Fridays um, right after Biggie died to offer my condolences. And she invited me to sit down and have dinner with her. And yeah, yeah and um, I carried it with me. I went home that night and I told my mother, I was like, if Lil Kim could invite me to sit down with her while she's still grieving the love of her life then I can interview artists for a living. Like literally that was the day that I had like made this like firm decision. Um, <laughs> and uh, two years, well, a year, a year later, I started um, uh, working with the roots. And, and yeah. So that gave you some confidence, just that hang alone that you were welcome. Yeah. And she had said to me, she's like, no matter where I am, you always have a seat at my table. And I, I never forget, like, I'll never forget that, that, like, her telling me that. And then um, getting to interview her a few years later and her remembering that moment and then getting to talk to her about these things while we were doing the book. It was, like, kind of a, it was really cool. It was, it was just, it was, it was huge, like, full circle moments. Um, but, you know, getting to talk with her to about prodigy you know my favorite parts of the book process 
were the conversations we would have when we weren't including things in the book and just us kind of like discussing, you know, her painting these pictures for me of what this world looked like because I was in the world, right? But I wasn't in that world, you know? And and like we had talked about um, while all of this was going on, like I had, you know, I was always a little Kim fan, um, but I was like very much in the underground at that point of like not knowing what was going on behind the scenes in the mainstream. I could tell you everything that was going on behind the scenes in the raucous world, right? But getting the story of what that world looked like from the eyes of one of the most important people in it, it was wild. So um, that was a gift in and of itself. And um, the book is crazy. <laughs> but yeah. We can't wait. I'm looking forward to it. You know, you keep us posted as to when we can, uh, when we can expect it. And I promise you I'll be among the first to cop. Shit, shit to make you feel shit Lump them in the club shit Have you out and out when you bump this Drugs to your eardrum, the war uncut Have a nigga OD cause it's never enough Yo, it's the real shit, shit to make you feel shit Lump them in the club shit Have you out and out when you bump this Drugs to your eardrum, the war uncut Have a nigga OD cause it's never enough Hot damn hoe, here we go again Light as a rock, bitch, uh, hard as a cop, bitch uh, This shit not for blocks, through hard tops In the parking lot, where my nigga rock Like the spark a lot uh, My brook lawns down, speak for itself Like a wrestler, another notch under my belt The embezzler There's legions of fans out there That are anxious to, to check it out And I'm sure people will be able to just Follow along with you on social Or your website So what are the, the you know best ways To stay up on all things, Kathy? The handle is the same everywhere, Kath3000, K-A-T-H-3-0-0-0. That's probably that's the best way uh, to get at me across the platforms, Instagram, Twitter. I think it's funny that we still have Twitter. I didn't remember like a couple months ago where everybody was like saying goodbye. Yeah, it's a little different now. And I don't know that it'll ever be the same. But yeah, there was the whole death funeral. Where are we going next? And here we are. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm super grateful for all this time. Like you gave me way more than I asked for and, you know, and it just opened the window a little further into your career journey, the work that you do, why you do it, some of the cost along the way. And I think that's important too. It's not all rainbows and unicorns out there and there is a cost and there's carnage to this shit. And uh, I appreciate you taking it there too. No, I, I appreciate you letting me tell the story and, and um, I'm glad we finally got to, to do this. Um, you know, I'm, I love what you're, I love what you do and like, and your, your passion and connection to music as well. I mean, it's, it's something special and, in an otherwise sometimes bankrupt uh, industry. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. And thank you for saying that. And you can always count on me if you got something happening, this book or anything, and you need a little bit of, you know, light shined on it, you know, ping me anytime. I appreciate that. There, there's um, I got some stuff happening for Hip Hop Fifty, so I'll um, definitely keep you in the loop.
Kathy Yondoli for that just really beautiful and personal deep dialogue about all the things she touched on so many topics dear to me artists and of course her illustrious and esteemed career as a writer reporter author journalist media coach teacher I mean so impressive and so grateful for so much of her time and energy and colorful emotional reflections this is why we do this and when i grow up i want to be like kathy yondley as soon as i drop this rock the boat remix from Mataya, it's like a time machine this is the track that set me back down the uh you know Aaliyah rabbit hole of stannery um, I was a fan, as I noted in the conversation, when she was alive and shortly after her death. And then it kind of fell off the radar, even before the streaming era. But then, at Burning Man, my second year in 2014, I boarded the Dragon Abraxas. Art car dear to me, peeps I roll with from time and time and again, and... This was part of my falling in love with the dragon, really. Uh, I was just dancing, and the DJ, Ataya, dropped this then-brand-new Rock the Boat remix. This is 2014, was I think so maybe the, the remix was out for a few months or whatever, but I heard it, I heard the snippets and sample of Rock the Boat, and it just... Ever since then, we're coming up on a decade this summer since I heard that. And it made me a fan of Ataya and then that whole British Columbia scene. Goopsteppa, Leland River, now Oak. So, all stems back to this Aaliyah remix on the Dragon, Abraxas, Burning Man 2014. So I had to work that in. I'm trying to play remixes, live versions, to not, like, poke the bear of the whole like streaming police so fingers crossed that uh it works out and uh on that note like we always do about this time the vibe junkie jams and i had to narrow it down there's so much i wanted to play i really wanted to play this heavy drum and bass jungle remix of mob deep shook ones that i heard from aman tobin at the Adirondack Mountain Music Festival in 2002 also split my wig and sent me on rabbit holes in 
multiple directions. But I digress. I'm not going to play that. We're going to split it down the middle, King Solomon style. First things first. When worst comes to worst, my peoples come first. First things first, we're going to go with my favorite L Boogie song of all time, Lauren Hill's song. I'm play a live version from Japan 1999, The Sweetest Thing. Just such a killer song. And then chase that with the last ever live performance of Aliyah doing more than a woman on the Jay Leno show. July 25, 2021, just a couple short weeks before her tragic passing. Um, and with that, it's been a doozy putting this one together. I'm grateful if you made it to the end. Please enjoy the Vibe Junkie Jams. I'm your host, B. Getz. I'm going to say goodbye, job bless, and we'll see you next time. Yes, indeedy. I've ever known Was like the kiss on a collarbone Soft caress of happy day The way you walk, your style of dress I wish I didn't get so weak Ooh, baby, just to hear Makes me argue just to see how much you're in love with me. Ooh, she's like a queen, a queen upon her throne. Was a sweet, 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 sweetest thing I know. So I tell you leave when I mean stay Warm as the sun dipped in black Fingertips on, small of my back More valuable than all Like your precious, 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 baby, baby, dark skin tone. It was the sweet, sweet, sweetest thing I've known. It made me say, it made me say, yo, uh-oh. Sweet, sweet.